It is Fish Bites time once again. Anytime can be Fish Bites time, honestly. Just subscribe to the Fish Stripes channel on your preferred podcast provider. New episodes delivered straight to you, or go ahead and browse for interviews and analysis from earlier in 2019. We did a whole lot of that this year. I am Eli Sussman, the managing editor at Fish Stripes. Appreciate all of you for tuning in for our continued Miami Marlins coverage. Coming up on this episode, an interview with longtime listener and a first-time guest, Daniel DeVivo. For the past couple years, he has curated a database for Marlins prospects. It's unlike anything that you'll find previously on Fish Stripes or elsewhere in the public domain. So with his blessing, I'll be sharing the latest version on the website and discussing a bunch of key players with him. That's going to be the second half of this episode. So what should we do until then? How about Marlins arbitration eligibles? Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time is the MLB non-tender deadline. And there's a strong chance, no guarantees, but I'd say at least a 50% chance that the Marlins do something on the transaction front as a result of their own arbitration class or any of the players eligible on the other 2019s. It is ultimately a deadline that should see perhaps a couple dozen new players added into the free agent pool and perhaps a handful of trades based on how these teams value their arbitration eligible players. Uh, Before going into that, I think it's appropriate to do a quick primer as to what MLB arbitration is. As you may already know, with players at the major league level, once you get six full years of service time, that's when you can test free agency and get paid at your quote-unquote market value as a player. Until then, you're what uh, I'd call team-controlled in that you don't fully earn uh, what the market says. It's based on the leverage that you have to negotiate with your own team. The first couple years, pre-arbitration eligibility, players generally earn right around the MLB league minimum, which is still a great way to make a living in the high six figures, but just a fraction of what these players probably should be making. The next couple years after that are your arbitration years. In most cases, three, and sometimes based on your precise service time, you can be a super two player, which means going into arbitration a little early and actually getting four shots to earn pay raises in arbitration. The process involves uh, your own player representatives coming up with a proposed salary for the upcoming season, then representatives from the team that you play for uh, coming up with their own lower uh proposal for that earnings and trying to come to an agreement. And in most cases, that's what happens these days is that although it's called the arbitration process, there are fewer and fewer players actually going to arbitration instead reaching an agreement at a midpoint salary before it comes to that type of hearing. Because when you do go to a hearing, it involves a quote unquote independent third party that takes into account the team's proposal, the player's proposal, and the precedent for similar similar players who had that kind of performance and service time at a certain position and trying to come up with a fair ruling on what the player should be earning. Uh, having those all those people in the same room can get contentious where you have, obviously, the player's representative trying to hype him up, but the team trying to tear him down and justifying that player being less valuable than he thinks he really is. The Marlins 
last year, coming into the 2019 season, they were fortunate to avoid all arbitration hearings. They settled with their players prior to that being necessary. That includes JT Real Muto, where they were able to settle on his salary uh, right before trading him to the Phillies. Uh, the year before that, though, the Marlins did have a couple hearings involving Dan Straley and Justin Bohr, and I think also Real Muto. They had at least two, if not three, hearings the prior year, and hopefully they'll avoid that kind of stuff going forward because it just creates unnecessary tension, and the industry around arbitration uh, I should say the analysis around this process is built up to such an extent that teams and players, they basically know what the value is. It's not precise, but it's come pretty close to that. And this coming year should be, it, it's not going to be very straightforward, but I'd say it's relatively low stakes arbitration class because the Marlins have a small class this year, only three players that are in that middle ground to be eligible where they have uh, more than two and a half years of service time, but less than six years. The three players eligible heading into 2020, left-hander Adam Connolly, uh, infielder slash outfielder, but mostly infielder JT Riddle, and right-hander Jose Orena. Those are the three players. And what we'll be doing in this situation is trying to anticipate what the Marlins will do with these players. And I want to issue my own opinions on what should be done with them. A big resource in this process will be Matt Schwartz. He's a contributor for MLB Trade Rumors, and he has developed a projection system developed a long time ago and most of my adult life, if I do remember correctly, where he has fine-tuned this model for projecting how much these players are going to earn as arbitration-eligible players. For Adam Conley, this is going to be his second year of arbitration eligibility. He earned one point one. Three million dollars in 2019, and although we struggled a lot in 2019, and we're going to get to that in a moment, he is projected to get a raise to 1.6 million from 1.13 to 1.6, nearly half a million dollar raise for him. JT Riddle, this is his first time in arbitration eligibility, and as is the case in virtually all cases, that means getting a raise because prior to being in this position, he's earned basically the league minimum and this time projected at about $900,000 in his first year eligibility. Urania is going to be in his second year of eligibility. Last year earned $3.2 million, and the raise he's expected to get will bring him up to $4 million, an $800,000 raise, although he did miss a significant chunk of this past season with injury. If the Marlins are very, very straightforward with this, and I don't think they will be, but if they did simply... Uh, tender all these guys' contracts right around that midpoint. You're talking about about $6.5 million added to their payroll in 2020. This is one of the smallest arbitration classes out there among all 30 teams. Uh, it's more typical to have five or six arbitration eligibles. There are some teams that are in the double digits with players in the service time range. So this is a drop in the bucket, relatively, for a team that already projects to have the lowest payroll in the majors in 2020. Um, this is just a small chunk of that, uh, but three, I think, pretty interesting cases of guys um, who have had some level of success in the major leagues, um, but never considered anything approaching an all-star caliber player, and guys that don't seem to be in the cards to get an extension in the near future, especially from the Marlins. That's why we're going to break down their cases one by one, 
and try to sort out how they fit into the Marlins moving forward and whether or not they fit at all and how exactly the Marlins could utilize their roster spot or their salary in a more efficient way for this upcoming season. Going in alphabetical order with these arbitration eligibles, first up is going to be Adam Connolly, who in 2019 was terrible for the Marlins. A 6.53 earned run average, a 5.19 fielder independent pitching in 60 and two-thirds innings pitched, all of that out of the bullpen. Connolly is going to be entering his age 30 season. At this moment, he is 29 and a half. And as I mentioned, his projection from MLB Trade Rumors is $1.6 million, which is not a lot of money. It's um, about tripled the major league minimum salary, but it's less than most decent free agent relievers. And this is a guy that just one year prior to that in 2018, his first year in a converted reliever role, he was pretty he was pretty good. Uh, he had a 4.09 ERA a 3.59 FIP in 15 and two-thirds innings in 2018. That was a year where he had very limited relief experience and yet was a pretty hot topic at that trade deadline where it looked like the Marlins had some opportunities to flip him for prospects in case they didn't necessarily trust him moving forward, but they did trust him. The big reason why is that his raw stuff is pretty good. That was the impetus for moving him to the bullpen in the first place where he had uh, fairly mediocre results as a starting pitcher for the Marlins in previous years, but with the move to the bullpen, he had an extraordinary spike in his fastball velocity uh, north of 95 miles per hour as an average fastball and topping out at 97, sometimes 98 miles per hour from the left side, which is so extraordinary, extraordinarily rare. If you look around baseball, some of the nastiest relievers are ones that are slim left-handers with high 90s fastballs look no further than Josh Hader of the Brewers or Aldis Chapman of the Yankees. This is the this is the prototype that the Marlins were dreaming of when they moved into the bullpen and saw this huge spike in his stuff that if he's a long lean guy that gets good extension, gets closer to the plate, then the perceived velocity on his pitch could be even higher than the actual velocity on his pitch making him really tough to hit. In that 2018 season, he had a, you know, a slightly above average strikeout rate. He was a three-pitch guy, fastball, slider, changeup, and the changeup was really the key secondary pitch. He had great results off of that pitch. Again, this is looking back at 2018, so two seasons ago, where opponents against that changeup that year hit 175, a 316 slugging percentage, a 48% whiff rate. Just to understand that, that means nearly half the time when opponents swung at his changeup, they missed it. The problem is, the changeup went from being this incredible weapon for him to being his biggest liability in 2019, allowing a 411 batting average against, 732 slugging percentage, and the whiff rate on the pitch nearly cut in half from 48% to 26%. I had done some analysis during the summer trying to figure out why it was that a guy throwing just as hard as he did the previous year was having such a big drop-off in success. And at that point, there were some red flags with the movement of his changeup and the velocity of it, where it seemed to be overthrowing the pitch. 
where it wasn't getting the same differential with his fastball as before, and it wasn't moving as much vertically or horizontally. So it was easier to track, and it was easier to recognize out of the hand by opposing batters. But following up on those numbers now, I'd say that the um, they normalized quite a bit, where when all of a sudden done, he's still got a 9-mile-per-hour separation between those two pitches. The, the movement on the pitches was not the same as it was the previous year, but it was still notable. Uh, it doesn't fully explain exactly what went wrong with him. There was surely some bad luck going on here. If you look at um, his weighted on base average against and his expected weighted on base average based on how the balls were actually hit by his opponents, trying to approximate what is what should have been the results, the expected results versus the actual results, he was extremely unlucky with the changeup. A 480 weighted on base average, which is about as bad as it gets, just truly terrible, non-competitive pitch. But the expected weighted on base was 356, which is well below average, but but acceptable and something that you can see a guy being able to compete with as long as he didn't get overexposed with the pitch. Um, in reality, Conley lost confidence in the changeup. Either that or he was instructed not to use it as much, where the usage rate on his changeup went down a lot from 2018 to 2019. He played around with a new breaking ball. Aside from the slider, he experimented with a curveball that was much slower. And in a limited sample size, that pitch really struggled for him as well. Um, the, what we keep coming back to is the fact that he's still a left-hander with good extension on his delivery who still has mid to high 90s fastball. And that is so hard to find and makes him a, a big curiosity for other teams across the league, whether or not the Marlins want to keep him or not. The money should not really be an obstacle here. $1.6 million. If he's anything close to an average reliever, then he's basically performing at market value. And we know how few options the Marlins have internally, at least for the opening day possibilities, out of their bullpen. They're pretty much building up from scratch arguably the worst bullpen in baseball last year, and that's when you include, you know, two-thirds of a season from Sergio Romo and Nick Anderson, who were both pretty great. Uh, What they're starting with heading into 2019 is a total revamp needed of that relief pitching operation, and I mean, if Conley bounces back, that plays a big role in doing it. Once you settle on a salary with these players, they're not fully guaranteed um, throughout the entire season. If they were to bring Connolly into spring training and something looks awry with him or he gets squeezed off because some of their top prospects are ready to break through to the opening day roster, then you can cut him for a small fraction of that arbitration agreement. You saw that last year with the Marlins and Dan Straley. They got all the way to opening day, and Straley was very clearly not one of their top five starting pitching options, so they cut him. And it was somewhat of a surprising move, but when you consider the fact that they only had to pay him uh, 45 days worth of salary um, instead of the whole guaranteed amount, less than one quarter of what it was his guaranteed salary for the season, then it's it's a lot easier to um, to process and to get over. Even for a low-revenue team, it's okay to eat that money if it's so apparent that the player is not a fit for you. Uh, Connolly got to work with pitching coach Mel Stoudemire Jr. last year. 
uh, unless there was some weird tension we don't know about, that would seem to be an advantage for them moving forward, is that Stoudemire is already very familiar with his pitch mix and his stuff and his comfort level with those pitches. So I would think another year together, uh, and not even committing for the full year, just bringing him to spring training, um, they can make a lot of progress in that department, getting to know each other better than they did before. Tendering Conley a contract for 2020 is relatively low risk, and that's what I'd recommend that the Marlins do. Feels like ancient history, doesn't it? That JT Riddle opened up the 2019 Marlins season as their primary shortstop. He was in a platoon with Miguel Rojas, but Riddle was the left-handed bat getting looks against right-handed pitching. And the very, very early results were encouraging. A couple home runs on the opening homestand of the season. I believe it'll be Wednesday as Riddle drives one out to right field. Blackman can only watch this one hit the facade. A home run for J.T. Riddle. Well, the swing adjustments are working. We've now seen him do this twice so far this season. During his platform year of 2019, a 189 batting average in the majors, 230 on base, 371 slugging percentage, and 139 plate appearances. That's why the projections have him for a, a very slight raise, up to $900,000 heading into 2020. And the big issue is that he's been displaced from the position that he seemingly had entering this past season, where he struggled early on, got optioned down to AAA New Orleans. Uh, Rojas took it off from there, not just playing very smoothly at the position, but also uh, emerging as a really solid uh, top-of-the-lineup option as well, making him pretty indispensable as a starting player. Uh, Riddle, when he made it back up to the majors later in the year, he saw a lot of looks in center field, which is a position that he had never played in professional ball. This is a guy now, this was his age 27 season, and he had no experience at this position. But by default, where the Marlins had so many struggles from other center fielders early in the year, he got his opportunity there. Uh, a couple nice plays, a couple really fundamental errors that made it pretty clear that this was still a work in progress, and if this is something you're picking up on the fly in your late 20s, the, the odds aren't good for you uh, getting the patience from your MLB organization. Riddle, after a few more weeks, he got sent down again to AAA, and he finished the year injured with a forearm strain for the last month, month and a half of the regular season. This is a guy that I was very encouraged by uh, the previous couple of years, where he did show himself to be not just a good, but in my opinion, uh, a well above average defensive shortstop. And there's a lot of value to be had in a guy that can play that premium position and has basically league average power as well. A career isolated power of 139, the difference between his average and his slugging percentage, 18 home runs in his career. Uh, about one full season's worth of Major League experience, 18 home runs while playing home games at Marlins Park. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. The fundamental skill, though, for Major League players is to get on base, and Riddle has struggled to do that. Even during his rookie year, a 282 on base percentage and all the way down to 230 this past year, the peripherals have gone pretty ugly. 
He used to have a, a league average about strikeout rate the previous two years, but that spiked way up here in 2019, striking out in 30% of his plate appearances. Uh, during some of his rehab appearances, he was used at other infield positions like second base and third base. So for a guy that we already know is smooth at shortstop, who has some interesting power and uh, a swing that I think can tap into that power um, occasionally against any level of pitching, um, if he could be a true utility guy, then all of a sudden the opportunities are open for him. But it's it's just an awkward fit with the Marlins at this time because of the strides that Miguel Rojas made in 2019. Um seemingly looking like a fixture at shortstop with Isan Diaz, the big breakout that he had, and the desire to get him very steady reps at second base. Uh, And most troublesome for Riddle's case is uh, probably going to be John Birdie, of all people, signed to a low-profile minor league deal at this time a year ago, and took him a while to really get a steady opportunity at the major league level, but he did down the stretch, the second half of the 2019 season, he was one of the most valuable players on the Marlins uh, because he was so impactful getting on base and as a base runner and because he was so versatile, playing second base, shortstop, third base, center field, corner outfield, pretty much any position, uh, Birdie was able to do that. And although he doesn't have quite as much prospect pedigree as JT Riddle does, uh, there's only a couple years age difference between them. And already Birdie has shown that kind of skill set at the major league level, whereas Riddle at the major league level, it's been um, a lot more limited, where you're just relying on his defense at the shortstop position. And if that's not really a fit for this roster moving forward, then I, I don't even know if it makes all that much sense for the Marlins to bring him into camp coming into 2020. At that salary, it's a very low-risk proposition, even more so than Conley, um, where you're not losing much at all just to bring him in and give him a shot. But the fit with this particular team is where I take issue with it. The Marlins have Rojas, Isan Diaz, John Birdie, and of course Brian Anderson, who for once they'd love to just stick him at third base and let him get comfortable at that position. Then I mean, the opportunity for Riddle to get playing time is if you assume one of those guys suffers a serious injury. If I was leading the Marlins front office, I'd be shopping around JT Riddle. The fit just doesn't seem great. He could maybe benefit from a change in scenery, and perhaps most importantly of all, uh, trying to trade him for a low-level minor league prospect, that opens up a spot on the 40-man roster for a team that we know has to be shopping for impact bats and relief pitchers this offseason, somebody's going to have to be expendable, and Riddle is a guy that definitely fits that description right now. Now, the curious case of Jose Ureña. 5.21 ERA, 4.74 FIP in his 84 and two-thirds innings pitched for the Marlins last season. Most of that as a starting pitcher. You'll remember that he was the opening day starter for the second straight year. He suffered a back injury in mid-June, and what was unusual about that is that in announcing a back strain, the Marlins immediately placed him on the 60-day injured list, ruling him out for two months on a previously unreported injury. 
as it turns out, it was a herniated disc um, that did, in fact, keep him sidelined for a couple months. By the time he was able to make it back in September, wasn't able to build up his innings workload that he had before, and so the Marlins utilized him as a reliever uh, immediately um, in a destroyed bullpen, as we've mentioned. The options for their bullpen down the stretch in the season were... um, pretty miserable, so they immediately plugged him into a high-leverage role, closing games. He converted three saves, and he also blew a few saves. He was not good as a reliever in his first taste of that role in a few years. The velocity played up from his usual mid-90s all the way into the high-90s, averaging about 97 miles per hour on the heater as a late-ending reliever, but he was getting hit hard as well. Combined in both roles in 2019, 8th percentile out of 100 in Major League Baseball in the average exit velocity against him, 29th percentile in the hard hit rate against him. That's always been um, the issue with Urania. He's had his hot stretches before, but it just seems to be the fact that he doesn't miss bats the way you would hope for someone with his kind of raw stuff. His secondary pitches, none of them in particular have really jumped off the map and turned into a trusty put-away pitch. Uh, one adjustment that he's been making steadily is increasing the usage of his sinker. He used to throw both a four-seamer and a sinker, uh, but under Mel Stoudemire this past season, he went entirely with the sinker, considering he's able to maintain that velocity, um, his high-end velocity, and if he gets more movement on the pitch, then why not go with the pitch? That gives you a better shot at missing bats. It just hasn't really worked out that way with any of his secondary pitches being able to complement off that, not getting the tunneling effect, as they say, that surprises hitters and keeps them guessing as to what you're actually throwing. He threw sinkers more than 60% of the time this past year, so maybe a little bit too predictable with what he's doing. And that carried over to when they moved into the bullpen. He was even more reliant on the sinker in that role with a pretty mediocre results. We're not that far removed from him being decent, You'll remember in September of 2018, he got onto this great run, one of the lowest ERAs in the majors during that final month of the season. But that's why you have to take the late season numbers with a grain of salt because of the level of competition you're facing and sometimes facing opponents that aren't all that motivated to perform against you the way that they would be earlier in the year and sometimes facing lineups that are not designed to be successful in the same way that they are during the middle of the season. With Orania, he is clearly the most expensive player of this arbitration class, due about $4 million as projected by MLB trade rumors. So do a raise, even though he was a below average pitcher in 2019. The process values guys that uh, rack up innings, and although he missed so much time with the back injury, still 84 and two-thirds innings pitch. That's more than just about any reliever does. And um, that's a significant amount of workload that is expected to um, earn him a decent reward for that. He'll be heading into his age 28 season, and it's a time where the Marlins have even more starting pitching options than ever coming up. They did trade away a couple guys last summer, like Zach Gallen and Trevor Richards, but now they have Sixto Sanchez, Nick Nider, uh, Robert Duggar, uh, and more waves coming up behind them in the not-too-distant future, George Guzman. In my first glance at this, I would think that some team will find him worth the money. 
Uh, not necessarily the Marlins. That's a that's a big question for the Marlins to have. Is that if they have uh, all these really inexpensive, high upside arms that are just about ready to pitch consistently in the major leagues, and Orenia is not one of the top five guys, and not necessarily one of the top six in terms of quality as a starting pitcher. Um, you have to wonder exactly where his fit on the roster is. The most likely fit is as a late inning reliever. Uh, so few established options already on the roster. And if you look at it, $4 million for one year, um, that's going to be a relatively low risk, all things considered. Um, Certainly a higher risk than bringing back Adam Connolly at $1.6 million. But if you look at the free agent market right now, the legitimately good free agents are getting well compensated. We saw it with the Braves signing a couple relievers already, going out and getting Will Smith for three years, $40 million, re-signing Chris Martin for a pretty heavy two-year deal. To find guys that have a long track record and are still relatively close to their prime, they may be in the market for multi-year deals or very incentive-laden one-year deals that would be even more expensive than Urania would be. And you still have one more year of arbitration eligibility with him beyond this coming year for 2021. So if things go well, you still have this other opportunity to keep him around. As with Conley, this is another guy that if you really trust your pitching coach in Mel Stoudemire Jr. and a guy that got to watch him firsthand all throughout 2019, when he was healthy at least, and see the way that his pitches move and come up with new ideas of how to utilize them, no doubt, Arrhenia left a bad taste in people's mouths with the way that he ended this past season, struggling in that role that seems to be one that was well-suited for him. But as I mentioned, you don't want to read too much into the results that happened at the end of the year. He's a guy that, all things considered, the injury that he suffered wasn't to his arm or anything like that, and he has those couple of years prior to that where he showed his durability. So sometimes the quantity of the workload outweighs the lack of quality of that performance as well. He's someone that, given that arbitration projection, and then you have that one extra year to fall back on if he does perform well, his trade value is probably a net positive right now, even if just slightly positive. And I could understand a situation where the Marlins want to close that chapter um, of the Urania experience, Uh, flip him for either younger players or ones that better suit their needs moving forward, such as a veteran bat that has some decent on-base skills. That's a situation that I would definitely look out for moving forward is finding a way to um, replace Urania with someone that better suits the needs of the organization at this time. Hopefully, the aftermath of Monday's non-tender decisions uh, create the environment where the Marlins have to make moves. And if they do anything really, really unusual and impactful, uh, I'll consider recording an emergency episode of Fish Bites to discuss and set us up for the winter meetings coming up very shortly. In the meantime, let's bring on Daniel DeVivo to cover all things Marlins prospects. Enjoy.
We are in the calm before the winter meetings blizzard. The Marlins may soon engage in some big headline moves. We've dedicated plenty of airtime on the podcast to speculating about that and laying out a plan for them. But right now, take pride in all the impact talent that the club already possesses in its farm system. To deep dive into it, I've brought on Daniel DeVivo as a special guest, checking in all the way from Colombia, friend of Fish Stripes, a very avid Marlins fan from thousands of miles away, and the proprietor of an amazing document. He simply calls it his Marlins top prospects list. I'm calling it the Marlins organizational database. I love it. That's why we are presenting it front and center on fishstripes.com. Whatever it is, Daniel, could you please explain to the audience what motivated you to put it together in the first place and some of the key features that fans may find helpful? Sure, 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 Eli. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's definitely an honor. I love what you guys are are doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I just I love baseball. I've loved baseball all my life because of my dad. Uh, played <laughs> probably played as a kid in school, but wasn't good enough. Um, Marlins fan since 97. Uh, my parents let me stay up to watch game seven um, of, of the World Series. And, you know, because of a 20-year-old kid from my home city, Barranquilla, uh, playing shortstop for the Marlins. And he, what do you, you know, he hit his uh, game-winning World Series hit. After that, I was just, you know, in love with, with the team. And, 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 yeah, I just love the Marlins. So with that in mind, um, when Jeter bought the team in 2017 well him and Bruce Sherman and you know new ownership came in it was clear that the rebuild was coming so I decided to create um I'm just an excel sheet at the moment as a hobby um just listing our best prospects according to Baseball America Pipeline Fangraphs you know just averaged out the ranks see how it looked how it looked like at that point it had like 40 players maybe um now it's up to 118 prospects yeah. Since then, yeah. Since then, I've added um, key information, you know, for each prospect, key stats, notes, um, and with all that information, after I started doing that, I just decided to start ranking them, you know, myself, um, taking into account as, as much information as possible. And you did send me a version of this also from last year, from following the 2018 season, mm-hmm. and then again this one for post 2019. So I actually did some head-to-head comparisons for folks at home, just a couple of the names that I found that changed a lot just from one year to the next. Uh, well, Zach Gallen, of course, he was number 20 on your list yeah. at this time last year, and he went on to like bolt all the way up to the majors and excel in the majors, and now I'm looking like a guy that was much more talented than that pedigree would suggest. Chris Valmont was the same way. He was all the way down mm-hmm. at number 84 on the list last year. And then by the time he yeah. was traded this past July, he was almost a consensus top 30 guy. Uh, but speaking of the, the players that are still in this organization, Gerard Encarnacion, he was number 49 last year, and you have him all the way up at number 14 now. So a huge rise from him and a very similar story for the right-hander Umberto Mejia, who's now on the Marlins 40-man roster. He was number 61 last year, and now you have him at number 23. And then on the opposite side of it, the guys that dropped a lot from 2018 to 2019, Joe Dunant, who was the former second-round pick, the nephew of Alex Rodriguez, he was number 15 last year, now down to number 46. Uh, James Nelson is a similar story, the former minor league yeah. player of the year for the Marlins, number 12 last year, number 55 now. 
you were one of the also one of the last holdouts on Tyler Kolek Island last year. You still had him <laughs> at number thirty-five, even though you know yeah. it wasn't pitching, it wasn't pitching well, and now all the way down to eighty-one and uh, coming off a really yeah. rough year. Uh, and just two more guys, Ethan Clark, who was number forty-five last year, he surprisingly fired entering this year, and also Isel Soto, the outfielder who was number twenty-five last year and ended up getting released in the middle of this that, summer. That one so was extremely throw, surprising. Yeah, yeah. Well, just throwing out those names. Any particular guy or two among those that changed so much one year to the next that you want to talk about? Uh, probably Gerard. I mean, he, he just, you know, from year to year in Carnacion, he's been, you know, just leaps and bounds. Uh, much better. The power is coming. Um, hitting tool. Um, that arm is crazy. So as he increases, you know, levels and keeps doing it, I mean, not only keeps doing it, but it gets better. I mean, he just had to jump. He, you know, invited to the AFL, killed it there too. So, so yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely him. I mean, he's, he jumped up into our, you know, in our outfield crazy depth, you know, right in there in the top spots. Yeah, yeah, me personally, uh, I, I don't like to pour water on anybody. I'm someone that's probably a little lower on Encarnacion than most others, uh, mainly because of the defense, where the arm strength is yeah. really impressive. He's he's a really big guy, as you mentioned, and the Marlins publicly talk very highly of him. Yeah, my big concern is just whether or not he's definitely you know a guy you trust defensively, or whether uh, he loses so much value that. He'd, he'd be a lot better on an American League team. But, I mean, that's something that's going to take a while to play out. Um, moving to other names, just any particular prospects that you feel you're higher on than the consensus prospect evaluators that, that you are really confident in and may rank differently on your list than on Baseball America or Pipeline, someone you're very high on and then someone you might be a little skeptical about compared to the rest mm-hmm. of the business. Um, so I would say, so my, my top 10 is pretty similar to, to, um, you know, to other lists. Um, but if I were to pick up out a player out of that, you know, that top 10, which you know, obviously is still pretty good and, and, and on lists, um, I would say that guy's Trevor Rogers, you know, he's eighth on my list, but I just, I mean, I just have to say the guy's amazing. He's throwing 94, 95 from the left side. Um, not to mention at six foot six with solid secondaries. Um, you know, I think uh, I haven't checked in, in the last month, but, you know, Fangraves had him like at 20. Um, there are a lot of, of people who have doubts on him. You know, everyone talks about how his 2019 season was great and it was, but they also like to mention that his 2018, which was his first pro season was a bad one. That's just not true. I mean, his ERA at 582 looks ugly. But if you look deeper, I mean, he actually had a 3.04 FIP, uh, 10.53 Ks per nine innings. I mean, that's that's elite, man. I mean, especially for his first season, which, um, you know, was immediately in a, in a full season league. His BAPIP, BAPIP was at 392. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really excited to see what he'll show us in 2020 and do believe that he'll be in a top 100 list by this time next year. Um, a sleeper? who people have kind of written off, uh, but that I feel if he can put some things um, together, can become a pretty solid player is probably a name people haven't heard in a long time. Thomas Jones. He, he has actually been slowly improving every year. Um, 
you know, he definitely needs to bring that K rate down, just like a lot of guys in our in our system. But he's still 21. I mean, he had a 111 WRC plus last year. Um, he has solid speed with I think 20 stolen bases this year. Um, great center fielder, solid arm. Um, I've heard he's probably the second best athlete in our system after Monte. He's a guy that could go either way. Like he, he can be 60th next year if if he just you know decreases results or he can like actually go up and can turn out to be a solid trade piece if 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 he keeps on you know building on on these years that he's been having probably start at um high a i'm assuming next year prospects i'm low on we actually you actually mentioned him um earlier it has to be joe dunant um you know he has been going down on this list i actually you know i update this list once a month um, that's what, what I try to do in the first week of the month. You know, obviously now that it's 118, it takes a while and it's still a hobby, but I, I, every month I, depending on results and what I'm hearing, I, um, I update the list and Joe Dunan just every single month, he just keeps going down. He hasn't shown the results that should come with, with a second round pick off, off college baseball. He was supposed to be a powerful guy, but hit only um, five home runs in 525 plate appearances um, in AA last year. Isn't really amazing that I know of at shortstop or third base. Um, doesn't have the speed. So he just, you know, he needs to really put it together, get that bat going for, for 2020. Yeah, going back to Thomas Jones, it's so complicated to like try to project what the Marlins are going to do with all their outfielders. And I, I know you have a little section yeah. on the spreadsheet that's going to update with trying to project like where the players are going to start their assignments in 2020, but they have such an overload of players in, in those middle levels that, you know, are still more than a year away, but very promising. And he wasn't, he wasn't even a, like a real everyday player for Clinton, but yet he had that hot streak. And there was a point, there's like a little window where I thought he'd be promoted to Jupiter. And instead they moved up Connor Scott. And mm, so they weren't right. able to really learn anything extra about Jones by pushing him against higher competition. It's going to be really interesting. And I think inevitably we're probably going to see some sort of trade with outfield prospects because if all these guys are oh, healthy, yeah. then you, yeah, you simply don't have playing time for all these guys, even with a designated hitter spot at those levels. And then with Dunand, um, he was participating very briefly after the season. I thought it was kind of curious that he went to the Dominican Winter League which was, it's a little unusual for a player that was healthy during the regular season. Um, for whatever reason, he got sent down there. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but he uh, was supposed to be the starting third baseman for one of the teams, and he just struggled immediately out of the gate. And yeah. I think he hit something like in the mid-100s with an OPS under 400. It was a real struggle, and he, he had to, um, I'm not sure exactly what the word was, but he almost resigned. He left, I think a little mm. prematurely. Um, and I even saw some fans in Spanish, like almost celebrating the transaction because he was struggling on this really competitive team. And I agree with you that it's difficult to see exactly where he goes, especially if you're not sure defensively, if he's a shortstop, because now there's enough, there's enough questions about the bat. The bat was supposed to be that really um, sure tool that he had. And now there's enough questions about that after spending all this time, in double a and not really improving at all uh one other feature that you have in this database that i like is you highlighted all the players that are going to be eligible for the upcoming rule five draft that's just a couple weeks from the date we're recording and by the time people listen to this it'll be right around the corner the rule five draft yeah and 
out of those 118, I believe it's 25 or 26 players that are going to be eligible for the Rule 5 that the Marlins did not protect on their 40-man roster. Um, of those guys, who are you looking at as players that are you think are at serious risk of being taken from the organization? So I don't see anybody who has serious, serious risk because, you know, if, if, if you, if you, you know, looking at the list, you know, the highest is Will Stewart who is currently at 25th, which is probably where everybody else around, you know, where every other list has him. Uh, but mo- mainly because um, he struggled at single at a high A uh, last year. So I would be really surprised, um, you know, if, if, if a, a major league team actually uses, you know, that last spot, even though, as you mentioned to me, um, rosters are increasing to 26 um, next year. I'd be really surprised if they do take him, you know, and stash him there for a year. I mean, he's, he's supposed to be really good, but not as good that, you know, you probably, you know, be willing to do that. Um, other players, you know, I can mention are uh, Tommy Evild. He did struggle in 2019, so I doubt it, but I mean, who knows? I mean, there, there's. I remember the Twins grabbed Kinley a few years ago. <laughs> they sent him back, but it's definitely a possibility. Um, Alberto Guerrero, he has never played above single A, so I doubt it. Um, Chris Torres also has never played above single A. Um, fielding is definitely not up to par right now. I think he had like 40 errors with the Lumber Kings this year, so I highly doubt it. Brigman, I would say, is a possibility, but again, not not a big risk i would say dylan lee solid uh reliever lefty he may be um a possibility but but yeah i mean a player who we really need to challenge next season um to see what we have in him i believe is um, luis palacios he was signed in 2016 so he would be eligible for rule five after 2020 not this year but 2020 um he's never played above the gcl so so i mean Maybe not a huge risk, but we just need to see what he what he has. We need to challenge him, you know, just get him to full season, see what we have in him, because the kid has been humiliating, you know, DSL, GSL guys left and right. I mean, I, I really want to know what we have in him, because if, if other teams like what they see also, they may take a chance. Kid looks like he's really good. Well, that's a good adjective for it, humiliating. I mean, the numbers that he put out are, they're amazing. He did it back-to-back years. It was the previous year, 2018, in the Dominican League, and then, yeah, this past year in the GCL, um, where he, it's it's amazing um, that he just refuses to walk anybody, and he refuses to allow yeah. home runs. And then, so the peripherals are pretty much perfect, and then the actual, like, run prevention is pretty much perfect. And when you have someone performing that way, while also facing slightly older competition, although it hasn't been a big challenge, as you said, because they haven't pushed him up to a higher level yet to face college kids and beyonds that we don't know all that much so far, but the, the performance really jumps off the page and I think he's 19 years old as as we speak. So that's going to be cool. Yeah, Um, His birthday is in July. I mean, he'll be 19 for a while. I mean, we're talking, 0.60 0.60 whip last year, 0.67 this year, 1.80 FIP last year, 2.22 FIP this year. I've already said he doesn't throw very hard, um, but I mean, whatever he's doing, I mean, we just need to challenge him. We, we need to, to see what, what we have in him because those numbers are just crazy. Uh, just based on what you're looking at right now, um, assuming most of these guys 
make it through the offseason intact and part of the organization, which affiliate do you think is going to have the most talented roster overall? If I remember correctly, having this discussion around this time last year, uh, Jupiter looked like it was going to be really loaded. And there was some hit and miss there where a lot of the pitchers really lived up to the billing. Some of the hitters regressed. Uh, but as things stand right now, what do you think for the fans that are going to be following the games live or for me that I'm going to be following the games live and bring highlights to the fans uh, through MLB TV, yeah. MILB TV, uh, which affiliates are, is going to be the most stacked you think? I mean, I would have to say the newly named, not sure how I feel about wind search. That team will have Sixto, Edward, uh, Cabrera, Neidert, Guzman, maybe Yams, depending if he makes a team or not in the rotation. I mean, and, uh, you know, offensive side, we're looking at, what, Jesus Sanchez, uh, Monte, if he doesn't make the Marlins, Chisholm, Lewin. I mean, I'm not sure if I'll watch the Marlins games <laughs> or these guys <laughs> during this season. I mean, that's that's just nasty, man. That's That looks like an amazing team. The Shrimp also look like they'll be – Solid, you know, Braxton Rogers, uh, Braxton uh, Rogers, Holloway, uh, maybe Umberto Mejia in their rotation, and you got Blade and Carnacion, Victor, Victor. Yeah, I mean, our system is pretty stacked, man. I'm pretty excited. Assuming those guys don't break camp, because they're ones like Sixto that that personally, I think I've seen everything I need to see with Sixto to believe that he's a major league pitcher right now. But I mean, yeah. the expectation is with him and with Monte and maybe a few others that the Marlins will be conscious about the service time that they have. And in most of those cases, if not all of those cases, even if it's close to deserving of an opening day spot, they'll keep them down for a little bit while just to try to add an extra year down the line of team control. It's because the Marlins are in such this interesting situation where they have this big wave of talent that's all coming in at almost the exact same time either at the very beginning of 2020 or in the middle of the year, we're going to be pretty overwhelmed with all these prospect promotions. No, completely agreed. Um, it really is exciting to be a Marlins fan right now. Maybe not on the major league level, but I mean, look at it. Look at this depth. I mean, it's true what Michael Hill keeps saying and saying and saying, I mean, it does get old, but it's true. I mean, it's coming. As we speak, and as this offseason goes on, one more year remaining on what's called the professional baseball agreement between MLB and minor league baseball. And the first proposal that's been floated out calls for the elimination of 42 separate minor league affiliates, downsizing the entire minor league baseball as we know it, removing yeah. some of these short season and rookie league affiliates. It, for the Marlins case, it would affect two of their affiliates being the Clinton Lumber Kings, and the Batavia Muck Dogs, both of those teams have had teams um, since then. I think both since the 1930s of, have had continuous minor league wow. baseball in those cities. Obviously, the affiliations have changed over time. Um, so, I mean, there's still a lot of negotiation to go with that, and I don't think anybody fully understands like the ramifications of it. But, uh, yeah, just generally speaking, I mean – <laughs> it's that that'd be a pretty big change to the way that we cover minor league prospects, wouldn't it? If you have smaller farm systems and in different cities, it, it would, um, it would really change like the entire industry in some respects. Definitely. I mean, it's a, it's a tough one. I definitely see both sides of the, of the debate. I mean, on MLB side, the supposed advantages are clear. I mean, costs will decrease. Um, and with a cutting of teams and, and players. So it can be redirected towards 
better lifestyle for the players who do remain salary, you know, facilities, transportation, it, it makes sense. But on the other side of the coin, um, jobs will be lost. Communities will lose their teams. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's something that minor league baseball will obviously balk on. You know, is that typical good business versus community impact decision? Hopefully they can find a balance that works for both sides. But, but um, I mean, you're, completely right uh, at this point how many rounds are there in a in a draft you know i mean and, and how many of those players um i mean it's great to have the dream but how many of those players actually end up getting to the majors it's it's a hard debate and <laughs> definitely we need to keep an eye out on if for people that listen to the minor league show that we do earning their stripes when we get a player on, like almost always the last question we ask them is for like a crazy lifestyle story about yeah. life in the minor leagues. And some of them are very entertaining, but <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> you'd rather they not have to endure that in the first place, yeah. right? Because if you sign to be a professional baseball player in your given year, if you're one of the top 1,000 incoming professional pl- players in the world, and sometimes if, even if you're higher than that, we've had some really former high draft picks that thought they were um, coming into the pro baseball and even on the fast track to being major leaguers. And the fact that pretty much all of them have to endure one of these types of situations on hands, it makes them make all these sacrifices to their diet, to, um, to their hygiene and all, all these other things that we don't think about uh, what puts them through in the off season to make up for the fact that they're not earning much of anything during the regular season and what they have to do to like keep themselves viable economically outside of playing baseball. It's all, they're all very complicated. And honestly, it's just seems to be overdue and um, what it's, it's overdue change, but getting it up to speed yeah. requires such dramatic differences. It, it doesn't, the proposal that is coming out initially doesn't seem right, but I frankly don't have like a better specific plan <laughs> myself because it is, it's, it's long overdue in a lot of ways. Agreed. But just as this podcast appearance was long overdue, you've been listening for a while and I'm glad we finally brought you on Daniel DeVivo all the way from Columbia. We probably should have brought you on last year when you had this other edition of the list <laughs> from 2018 that you brought to my attention. But this year you added so many cool new features uh, all those tabs projecting where players are going to go, lining up the player stats from each of the last three to four years, uh, grading their performance, condensing their performance into a single letter grade that helps it easier for fans to digest. We're going to make sure to attach that document to this podcast on fishstripes.com. If you're listening to this on a certain pl- pod platform, then make sure to click over to the website to see the document. I'm sure we're going to put it out on social media as well at fishstripes.com on both Twitter and Instagram. People can find you at Daniel DeVivo on Twitter. I know you're not looking for the attention, but you're a really mm-hmm. fun person to engage with on all Marlins topics Thanks. when we discuss it on social media. Uh, Daniel, it was excellent to have you on the show. No, thank, thank, thank you, Eli. Um, just you know, to finish off here, you know, Fish Stripes followers will obviously disagree with with a lot of players on the list. Um, but my, my idea, you know, by sharing this is just so people have all this information collected in one place and maybe, you know, they can try out making their ranks, you know, and, and their list. Um, so hopefully, yeah, hopefully uh, you guys enjoy it. And, and thanks for having me, man. It's been a pleasure. Love what you guys are doing. Keep it up.